We have a privilege now of hearing from our brother John Brackett, and he's coming to us from the porch, so he's going to preach to us uh, from Acts 4 this morning. So John, we're just delighted to have you and uh, very thankful for, for you this morning. Yeah. All right. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Um, I was, well, I can't, I guess I can't say I was here, huh? I was at the other one um, <laughs> yeah. a couple months ago. Um, and I also taught uh, from the book of Acts. So today, um, when Chris said he was out of town, he asked me what I wanted to teach. And I was like, oh, I have this other sermon I did one other time um, from the book of Acts. So let me do that <laughs> so I don't have to write another one. Um, and so we're going to be back in the book of Acts today. So we're going to be in Acts 4. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 4. Um, I also have slides, but let me just open up in prayer before we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word and just time to get together and talk about it and uh, to, to sort of study it together. And I just pray, Lord, that, um, that you would use your word this morning to speak to your people and that you would uh, comfort us and encourage us and, you know, um, that you would build up uh, your church here in San Francisco through your word. And so now I just, um, like I usually pray before I preach, Lord, I just pray that, um, that this time would be about you and your words and not really about me and mine. And... Um, so just press this passage into our hearts, Lord, um, as we study it this morning. Amen. Um, so Jesus told, I think I have slides here. Is this working? There we go. Uh, Jesus told this parable. I want to start out by reading this parable. And uh, he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So it's a pretty simple story. Let's jump this to our context. Imagine for a second that you're looking for property in San Francisco uh, to buy a house or an apartment, because apparently you have a billion dollars. <laughs> and um, you're going around, you're looking at places, and you've got a real estate agent. And uh, as you're walking around, you're, you're going to all these places, and your real estate agent says, well, I have this one listing. Um, the place is a dump, though, but let's just go look at it. So you go and you look at it, and you walk in, and there's mold everywhere, and the floor is all disgusting, and you can just tell nobody's taken care of this place in a long time. And so the real estate agent's kind of walking around, and you're just, you know, you're walking around the room, and as you're walking around, you notice there's like a loose floorboard. So you sort of kick the, the floorboard over, and you look down, and there's a bunch of gold bars underneath the floor. <laughs> so you think to yourself, huh, this place is all of a sudden looking pretty good. So you, you close the floorboard, you sort of stomp it down, make sure nobody sees the real estate agent goes, comes back in, you say, I'll take it. <laughs> she goes, what? This place is a dive. Why would you buy this place? And you go, well, I just, I really like the, the uh, and you try to think of something, you know, it's quaint or something like that. And so <laughs> you go and you buy the you buy this house for a million dollars because you know there's $10 million worth of gold for some reason. It was a mobster's house or something hiding underneath the floor. Now, the point of the story is the treasure changes everything, right? From the outside, the guy buying that house for a million dollars. Actually, in San Francisco, it's not that crazy. Didn't somebody just sell an empty lot for like a million dollars or something? Anyway, but, you know, uh, looks crazy, right? Buying a rundown apartment or an empty field. Are you insane? No, the treasure changes the whole perspective. Today, our key word uh, from this passage is going to be the word bold. Now, here's the thing, though. Boldness is not just sort of acting crazy for no reason. That's, you know, it's not just psyching yourself up to do something stupid. That's not what boldness is. Boldness, in sort of a biblical sense, is looking crazy because you're working from a more important truth. 
That's what boldness is. It's looking crazy because you're working from a deeper, more important truth. And so in the story that Jesus told, there's a treasure in the field. That treasure was there. That's a fact. And so while it's insane to sell everything that you have to go buy an empty field, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense because the field is far more valuable than anybody knows. It's not that crazy at all. Now, the church of God, we as followers of Jesus, uh, we're supposed to live with this kind of boldness. This sort of boldness is supposed to mark who we are. The treasure is supposed to shape and change our entire worldview because the gospel is the, the most true and the greatest story of all time, right? It's the story of how Jesus Christ has redeemed, uh, redeemed us from sinful mankind. It's the story of the greatest hero, uh, the hero ever. And he did this through his death and his resurrection. And we know that heading into, we are heading into eternity where we're going to live in a perfect world for all of eternity, right? In the new heavens and the new earth together. And so um, that's sort of, that's the treasure, that story. Jesus is that treasure. So the question though is that, does that story really shape the way that we live into turning us into these bold kind of people who are willing to sell everything to go buy the field. And the sad truth is that with the American church, the answer is often not really. Sometimes and sometimes not. A lot of what us church folk do, right, is actually could be described as more timid, not bold. Right? Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, One of the big ones, though, and probably the biggest one, is that we're not really focused on the treasure, Christ. Right? We're We're more focused on the cost of the field and forgetting the treasure at the end as we live our lives. We lose sight of the end game. So how can we be more bold? How can we live in the, as we're living in this, the, you know, the already, not yet, the in-between, how do we live here with boldness? That's what I want to show you today is this early church, I think, did this really well. And so um, we're going to read through um, Acts chapter four uh, today. But first, let me just tell you what happens in chapter three, because we're sort of jumping in the middle of a story. So what happened in chapter, I guess, two is all these people got saved during Pentecost and the church expanded and grew. Um, Peter and John, two of the apostles, one of the days while, you know, in this early, early church period, they were walking to the temple and uh, they were going up there to pray. And there was a guy that sits out front of the temple and he asks for money, this beggar. And so Peter says to the guy, look, I don't have any money, but let me give you what I do have. Get up and walk. You know, he's a lame beggar. And the guy, so he heals this guy. The guy's dancing around. I love that part. He's like jumping around, singing for joy. A whole crowd gathers and says, what's going on here? How's that guy walking? And so Peter starts to tell this story. Oh, let me tell you about Jesus, everybody. So this crowd gathers. Peter's talking about Jesus. um, And that's sort of right where we pick up the story is while they're speaking to the people. So today, what I want to do is I want to show you three things from this text. The first one is the early church was marked by bold risk. The second thing is that they were marked by bold prayer. And the third thing is that they were marked with a bold community. And I think if we could do all three of those things, churches in San Francisco would be pretty awesome. So um, we'll start in verse, wait, do I point it this way? I lied. This thing's not working. Can you click it? You just follow the verses. You'll kind of keep up, I guess, or I don't know. Oh, there it is. I don't know. Um, So we'll start in verse one here. Um, And as they were speaking to the people, the chief priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody till the next day, for it was already evening. So they're out there. They're speaking to the people. This is their crime. 
This is what they were doing. They were speaking to the people. Um, these followers of Jesus, these guys weren't seminary trained leaders, right? They were just, they weren't real rabbis. That's the problem in, in this culture. You couldn't just get up. They didn't want you to just get up and be teaching anything. And so um, these temple authorities, they, they stepped in and they decided to do something about it. And it says that they, they came upon them. And the Greek, it's real, like the wording is kind of weird. It's, it's portrayed like it's real quick. It's almost like they jumped them. So Peter's like in mid-sentence and somebody comes up behind him and he grabs him and it, they drag him away. Now, why so harsh? Because it says they were greatly annoyed. This is another one of those weird Greek words without an English equivalent. So every translation translates this a little bit differently, but it's like an active anger, right? An anger that takes energy from the person who's angry. You know the feeling. Have you ever been so upset with somebody that it made you tired? You're just like, oh, you are so dumb. I need a nap. You know what I mean? This is what this is. It's the disciples. They're stirring up the people and the the temple authorities. They're just so furious. So they go and they grab them. What's making them so mad? It's that they're teaching about the resurrection and they're saying that Jesus uh, is the one who fulfilled the resurrection, right? And um, that the... There is a life after this one, and Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. And so um, the Sadducees who ran the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, uh, they did not believe that there was a life after this one. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they're really upset that they're talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So they grab him, they jump him, they throw him in jail, they put him there till the next day because they can't... Um, the, the Sanhedrin only has meetings certain times of the day, so they're not allowed to meet at night. They're not supposed to meet at night. Um, which is all why it was shady when they arrested Jesus and all that at night. All right, verse four. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you'd expect, this is a really weird verse to throw in here, right? So the the apostles get jumped and arrested. So you'd expect it to be a setback in the church, Uh, but that's the exact opposite of what happens. Luke gives us this detail where he says, look guys, even during this time, the church grew to about 5,000 men. So, I mean, just guessing, right? That's like 20,000 total people. The church is growing exponentially. And how did they come to believe, right? By, by hearing the word from the apostles, they're hearing this gospel story and it's changing people's lives all across Jerusalem. And so do you see that teaching the word is how people are putting their faith in Jesus, but it's also getting the people teaching arrested. And so that's part of the tension of this passage. That's part of the dynamic here is, are they going to be willing to risk this violent death to teach the word so that people will come to meet Jesus? Keep going. Verse five. So let's see what happens on the next day. The rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So the Sanhedrin was the group here. Now, if you can imagine for a sec, the president, Congress, the Supreme Court, um, you know, like a criminal courts all rolled into one. These guys had a lot of power and there were 70 of them plus the high priest. So there were 71 of these guys. And uh, these are the guys who killed Jesus just a few months before. Um, and we talked, I talked about this group a little bit last time when I was here, because we read about um, when uh, James and Peter got arrested and everything. Uh, but so without getting into all these different guys' names, this, he lists all the names of these guys. Um, this was a powerful group of people. And then you have Peter and John, these two redneck fishermen, right, from Galilee, which was like their version of Alabama, you know. And so verse seven, (laughs) so when they set them in their midst, they inquired by what power, what name did you do this? So they set them in their midst. This whole thing was set up to be 
It's all about intimidation. So the way the Sanhedrin, they had this big sort of half circle of a hall and they had this pit and you, they would put you in the pit and then everybody else was sitting up high so that they were looking down at you. So you're supposed to be very intimidated. So they put them in their midst and they start questioning them. By what power did you do this? Now, um, remember, these are the same guys that accused Jesus of uh, healing demons by the power, um, casting out demons by the power of Satan, right? So they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what are these guys doing? Imagine being upset because somebody healed somebody else. So that's sort of the place we're in now. They're upset because I don't know why they did. They couldn't do it. Their power is being threatened. That's really what's going on here. So verse uh, eight, let's see how Peter answers. Well, what power? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means he has been healed? Let it be known to you, uh, to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, which is why every church in America is named Cornerstone. And there is no salvation in, um, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So right off the bat there, at the beginning of verse eight, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the last things that Jesus said to his apostles right before he took off into heaven was in Acts 1.8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was a promise. He said, look guys, I'm going to go, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit come upon people for specific like one-time tasks. So a judge, a king, and a battle, the Holy Spirit comes. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is unleashed on his people at Pentecost. And it's this ongoing filling throughout your life. And so throughout the book of Acts, um, Luke keeps telling us, this guy was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this, sometimes it's the same guy, right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit again. It's just like Jesus promised in Luke. He said this to them. And they're going to bring you before uh, the synagogues and the rulers and authorities. Um, do not be anxious about what uh, about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus told him, look, you guys are going to get arrested. They're going to drag you before groups like the Sanhedrin. And don't worry about it though. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you. So what did the Holy Spirit guide Peter to say? His answer is brilliant. He basically says, are you really asking me how I healed a guy? Seriously? It's, it's a, such a ridiculous question. They're upset because he healed somebody. Do you guys remember the subway hero in New York a few years ago? Um, it was 2007. His name was uh, Wesley Autry. I had to look up his name. Anyway, he jumped on the tracks and pulled somebody off, I think, who was having a seizure down on the tracks. And it was like this whole story. Um, I know they made fun of it on 30 Rock and everything. Well, in the State of the Union address that year, President Obama invited him and uh, called him out by name and everybody cheered. Now, imagine the same story, but instead Obama says to him, hey, subway hero, who gave you the right? Don't you know it's illegal to go on the tracks? You know, and starts... And imagine something like that, but that's even a bad analogy because the president only has so much power, right? He didn't have Sanhedrin kind of power. So imagine that same story, but in maybe North Korea or somewhere. And Kim Jong-un says, who called, you know, that's kind of what's going on. But when that happens here, Peter isn't phased at all. He's like, look, dude, I healed the guy. It's a good thing. But if you really want to know, fine, I'll tell you, Jesus did it. And you didn't have to arrest me, by the way. I was telling everybody, you interrupted the middle of my sermon. Um, I was just out there saying it. And so and he continues, he goes, and boy, don't you guys have egg on your face, right? Because you're the stupid ones who killed this guy. This is the guy. But don't worry, guys. He's okay. He came back from the dead. You could just imagine the rage building up inside these guys in the Sanhedrin. 
And he tells him, look, you rejected the Messiah, the cornerstone. This is your job to be able to know when the Messiah shows up. And instead you killed him. Don't you look like an idiot? Jeez, Peter, tell us how you really feel, right? Like, this is pretty, this is bold. And that's, look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, that's Bible talk for rednecks, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So that's our key word there, boldness. After Peter is described as filled with the Holy Spirit, he's described as bold. But notice it says, uh, when they saw the boldness, something in him was visible, that they could see the boldness of Peter. Um, Think of the change in Peter. Just a few months ago, he's denying he even knew Jesus to a slave girl around a campfire outside of Jesus's trial. And now here he is standing in front of the Sanhedrin saying, you guys killed him. You know, Jesus is the one who healed this guy. Where did these country rubes get the gall to stand up to us? That's what the Sanhedrin's wondering. They're upset. Right? The Sanhedrin's shocked. They've never seen anything like this. They've probably had hundreds of people come and stand in this pit, and everybody is shaking and afraid because they think they're going to get flogged or, or executed or whatever. This is not normal behavior. Right? From a human perspective, the Sanhedrin has the upper hand. Literally, they're sitting up high. But from Peter's perspective, these chumps can't touch him unless God lets them. And so from one angle, Peter's insane, but from another angle, this whole story makes perfect sense. So let's see how it plays out. Verse 14. I like this little detail too, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they can't deny the good that Peter and John have done. They're in a real pickle here, but look at this. It says that the guy was standing right there with him. That's an interesting detail. They arrested him too. They arrested the guy who was healed, probably because, I mean, I don't know for sure, but probably they thought these three cooked up some sort of a scheme so that they can trick people into believing in Jesus. The problem is, um, and we'll see this later, the guy's been standing outside the temple begging for years and years and years. So this is not just some guy that they brought in and, you know, like the televangelist preachers, you know, and the old lady gets up out of the wheelchair and she's (laughs) like, oh my goodness, you know, this is not what's going on. This is the same beggar, homeless guy who sits out in front of the temple every day. And these guys have seen this guy for years and years. If this was a con, this is a long con, right? This guy's sitting out there for all these years. All right, verse 15. So they don't know what to do. Uh, Verse 15, when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further to the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So they say, look, guys, go wait in the hall while we decide what to do with you. Did you ever do something so bad when you were a kid that you had to go wait in the hall while your parents decided how bad to whoop you? Does anybody remember that terror of sitting in the chair while you knew your parents went? I, I remember one time when this happened to me, when I was a kid, I fake autographed a bunch of baseball cards and made a bunch of money at my school selling them to dumb kids that didn't know any better. And my teacher, and then I spent all the money on candy and some parent called because they were like, oh, this is not Will Clark's signature. This is Will Clark's signature. And they called the school and they sent me home and it was a whole thing. And I remember sitting in that hallway thinking, well, I had six years, right? I had a good run. <laughs> you know, my parents are going to kill me. Well, this is like that, but a thousand times worse because they might actually kill him. So they're sitting outside. Are we going to be flogged? Are we going to be beheaded? Just like James was in that passage that I taught last time. Um, are they going to crucify us like they did to Jesus? stone us like they're going to do to Stephen in just a few chapters. So the decision, they bring them back in and they warn them, guys, cut it out. And then they send them away. So this time they sort of get away with it. 
but they won't be so lucky in the future. Well, you know, you, as you read through, you'll see later. Um, so the smart thing now to do is to say, yes, sir. And to leave with the skin on your back, right? No, right? Well, I mean, it seems from our perspective, that would be the smart thing to do, but not from the bold gospel perspective. Look what Peter says, but Peter and John, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. So look, you guys are telling us not to talk about Jesus. God's telling us to talk about Jesus. Easy choice, do whatever you're going to (laughs) do, right? These guys are nuts. Just shut up and go home. Seems like the pretty smart thing to do, but nope, they, stay, they, they get right back in there and get right, uh, right in their face. So let's see, what do they do? And when they had further, th- verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing uh, was performed was more than 40 years old. So for a long time, this guy's been sitting out there. So they didn't know what to do. So they threatened him some more. Peter was like, yeah, sure. Whatever, dude. You know, and they're, no, we're really going to kill you next time. And yeah, okay, whatever. And fine. But they knew they, they couldn't do anything to these guys because the crowds would go bananas, which is why they killed Jesus in the middle of the night and did all that stuff that they did there. These guys still are sort of afraid of the crowds. Um, so they couldn't see a way out of this without um, starting another whole hoopla. All right. So that was the first one, right? Bold risk. What Peter and John did here, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, was very risky. So now let's move into bold prayer. Verse 23. Uh, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I love that the first instinct after this happened is to go and tell the church family, uh, you know, go find their small group and tell everybody about what happened. Verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices uh, together to God and said, now, how do most of our churches handle stuff like this? We get the leaders together. I mean, well, we don't have stuff like this because, you know, we're not as bold as these guys or whatever. But if we did, like when we have problems, how do we handle stuff? Well, we get the leaders together and we hash out a plan. Um, Committee meetings, that's one of my favorite things. Um, Let's write a blog post about it and then hope the Gospel Coalition picks it up and a million people read it. Um, Right. Well, how did their church handle it? They got their small group together and they prayed. It's their first instinct. Now, this right here, there's a lot of prayers in the Bible. I think this is my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. Okay. So read this prayer and ask yourself this question. Do I pray anything like this? And probably the answer is no. Um, Verse, uh, the middle of 24 there. They said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The Kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers uh, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The first thing that they do is they pray about God. This is how all the great prayers of the Bible go, especially here. They're praying about his sovereignty. And what they're doing is when they're talking about God and his sovereignty, they're reminding themselves God is in control. I was standing in the pit and the Sanhedrin could have killed me, but not unless God let them do it. And this is sort of what I talked about last time I was here with Peter and James and when one of them was executed and one of them wasn't. But the second thing that they do, so they're praying about God, but the second thing they do is they're not just making stuff up. They're literally quoting scripture. This is a quote from Psalm chapter two. They're saying, God, remember when David was opposed by his enemies as he led the people of God? Well, now we're going through some of the same kind of stuff right now. But the good thing is you were in control then, you're in control now. And they continue in the prayer. For truly... In this city, they were gathered together against your Holy Spirit, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. Nothing happens outside of God's control. And this is how they put it. If the murder of Jesus, the worst thing that ever happened, was part of God's plan and was also the best thing that ever happened all at the same time, then we don't have to worry about the threats of the Sanhedrin because they can't hurt us unless you let them. And if you do let them, it's because you've got something better in mind. The same way that Jesus being killed was better, uh, you know, was a good thing, but it was also a terrible thing all at the same time. And so now verse, uh, where is it? 29, they get to the request. And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The real request is, Lord, help us to keep being bold. Help us to understand the gospel more and more and more. Help us focus on the treasure in the field more and more so that we won't chicken out when we have these sort of kingdom opportunities, right? That's another way to say this is keep our eyes on the treasure while we count the cost of the field. Don't let us get caught up in what it costs in the here and now, but let us continue to speak the word with boldness. I love that they didn't even ask to not be arrested again. Because just in a few chapters, they will. James will die, and then Stephen will die, and then eventually Paul and Peter, and all of them, except for John, and he gets arrested and boiled alive. He just didn't die from it. Right? These guys will suffer heavy persecution, and here they are, and they're not even praying, Lord, we don't want to get flogged. We don't want to get crucified. Figure this out. What they're praying is, while they're crucifying us, help us to speak the word with boldness. While they're boiling us alive with oil, help us to pray for the people doing it. Right? They're praying for this kind of boldness. It's such a wonderful thing. And then verse 31, uh, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. See, again, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with what? With all boldness. Prayers are always answered or not always answered immediately, right? But here it is. I think this is pretty cool. God's answer was sure, (laughs) right? All right, you guys, if you want boldness, I'll give you boldness. And so the prayer was answered. It says they continued to speak the word with boldness. And this played out exactly like I said, in how the rest of the book of Acts uh, goes, is these guys speak the word with boldness. You know, Paul's stoned alive, James is beheaded, whipped, beaten, all this stuff happens because they speak the word with boldness. So we have bold risks. We did bold prayer. Now let's look at what the bold community looks like. This last section here, verse uh, 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart, and soul. And no one said uh, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a lot like the verse we read earlier from uh, Acts 2, 42 and 43. So the, they had everything in common. It starts though by saying um, they had one heart and one soul. This is a unified church. How are they so unified? Well, because they're sort of out on the front lines together. When you go through something life-changing and something this dramatic with somebody else, it creates a bond. So think of um, people who have served together in battle. That experience brings them together. One of my favorite, um, I read the book and then they did the miniseries Band of Brothers, you know, and you hear them talk about the other guys in their group, the ones that survived. These guys have this bond like nothing else. And so for this church, they've been through this, this battle together. They've been through this major life transformation, this huge moment. Um, and they're because they've been redeemed by Jesus and they're literally together, they're going out there and they're risking life and limb to follow him. And because of that, their arms are linked and they're out there in a, with this bond of unity. And the way that it played out is that they shared their stuff, right? The gospel created a bond between these folks that was stronger than the bond that they had with their stuff. Now our stuff has this strong bond on us, 
right? And our stuff likes to control us. But what the gospel does is it says, no, people, especially your church family, more important than your stuff. Now, I heard a pastor once say, this is not communism, right? Like there's a lot of guys that this is their favorite verse. Like, okay, we need to be a bunch of communists. But he said this, and I like this. Communism is more about like what's yours is mine, but this is about what's mine is yours. You see that? This is about voluntarily sharing your own stuff. And I don't think any of this was sort of mandatory. Like in the part where they, in the next chapter where Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about selling a house and giving the money. And he's like, look, dude, it was your own house. You didn't even have to sell it. Like, why would you sell it and then give part of it, which is still pretty cool, but then lie about giving, you know, but he says that, look, it was your own house. You didn't have to do this. That was kind of how this was. But people loved their church family so much more um, than they loved their stuff that they were uh, sharing. So verse 33, and with great power, what else did their community do? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So the next thing in this bold community is that they were constantly going together deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel. And here they didn't have the New Testament yet, but I bet a lot of what they were doing was Peter and James and John and all these guys um, getting up and reading the Old Testament and reading Isaiah 42 and saying, look at the suffering servant. This is Jesus. Or, you know, reading the, the story of David and Goliath and saying, look how Goliath or David killed Goliath. That's what Jesus did to your sin. Or, you know, reading the story of Moses and talking about Jesus is the greater prophet. They were, go- they were doing this. They were going deeper and deeper and deeper into these truths. And one of the things though... <laughs> is every week when we're at church, I don't think we have to learn brand new information. What we need to do is have a deeper sense of what we already know, which is, uh, you know, what I appreciate about you guys is 42 page uh, dealio that you do every week. Like that's kind of the point of it, right? Is to take, you read the, is it the Westminster catechism you guys do? Yeah. I'm a Heidelberg guy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. But um, you take that because what you're doing is it's something you already know, but you don't know it enough. Right? And so you're taking it. And that's why we read a lot of these stories. I'm guessing most of you have read this chapter before, but we're trying to take these truths and take them deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what they're doing. And um, they're learning this stuff over and over again. Verse 34, let's see what else. Um, Continued to describe this bold community. There was not a needy person among them for as many were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of uh, what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what happened was at Pentecost, all these uh, Jewish folks were in town in Jerusalem from all over the world. And if you read in Acts chapter two, it gives the list of where everybody was from, from all over the sort of the Mediterranean and North Africa, they had people there. And a bunch of them became believers at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And they all decided, you know what? We're going to move to Jerusalem. We're going to hang out and we're going to be a part of this church plant. But the problem was all of a sudden now you have thousands of people to take care of who don't have jobs. They don't have anywhere to live. And so what the church did was this is how they handled these people. They were like, we're going to step up and we're going to take care of these folks and we're going to take care of one another. And the chapter ends with an example of a guy. Luke holds up Barnabas as an example, as if to say this was happening on a wide scale, but let me tell you about one guy, because this really, it was individuals who were doing this that make up the wide scale. And this dude was so great that the apostles gave him the nickname, the dude that encourages people, 
Right, his actual name was Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which just means the guy who encourages people. And it made me start thinking about, uh, what would my nickname be? Or, you know, so maybe, I don't know, the guy who eats too much pastries or whatever. Um, so this is how chapter four ends, right? With this example of a dude who was so changed by the resurrection of Jesus that he sold his field, his property, and he gave it away. And later on, you'll see he'll play a huge part in the book of Acts with Paul and everything. But this is how it all started for him, just being part of this bold church in Jerusalem. And so that's how the chapter ends. So we have bold risks, bold prayer, and bold community. And I want to talk about each of these three, but I want to do it backwards. So I want to start by talking about the bold community. And then for each of these, I just kind of have two little bullet points that describe them. So the first one is that the bold community, what we saw today was that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Now that Jesus has died and resurrected, he has unleashed the Holy Spirit on his people. And like I said, he told his disciples, look, it'll be better for you if I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come. He'll live within you. And this, it's a, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Like I went to a Pentecostal college and in my Pentecostal college, Bible college, I literally had a professor that said the whole, the filling of the Holy Spirit, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like almost like a second salvation. And if you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. I was like, well, that never happened to me and I didn't, but I'm pretty sure, you know, like things are going well. Um, I don't think that's what this is. I think the baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to call it, the filling of the Holy Spirit is just this ongoing lifelong process where you're surrendering your life to the Spirit of God. And it's not that, like I said, you don't need to be filled once with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled every day constantly with the Holy Spirit. And I like the analogy of your life is like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. You fill it with water and it slowly leaks out and you just need the Holy Spirit to turn the faucet on just to fill your life up constantly. So how do we do it? How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, one Pentecostal, I don't rag on Pentecostals, but one Pentecostal um, church that I saw when I was at that college, they had a, like a Sunday school class about how to speak in tongues, right? You could take a Sunday school class. And I didn't go, but what somebody told me was that they said, pick a word and then just say it like a whole bunch of times, you know, refrigerator, refrigerator, refrigerator. And then you start messing it up and now you're speaking in tongues. There you go, right? So is that how you do it? Is that how you're filled? No, not really. That's... <laughs> Yeah, that guy's going to have some explaining to do when he reaches the throne someday. But no, how do we do it? Look, there's no magic formula, right? There's just regular stuff that God told us to do. We read our Bible. We pray. We do this stuff, right? We, we, we spend time together in church. We take communion. It's just the regular means of grace that God has given us. That's how we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But another important thing that I think we see in this passage is you put yourself out there, right? The Spirit doesn't show up when he's not needed, so let's put ourselves in places where he needed. Francis Chan wrote that book about the Holy Spirit. And one of my favorite quotes from that book is something along the lines of, look, I don't want my life to be explained with my own power. I want to be putting myself out there constantly so that whatever happens, people won't go, oh, look what Francis did. They'll go, wow, he never could have done that. And I think that's a good sort of motto for our churches. The more we put ourselves out on the limb, the more the Spirit will show up and catch us. The second thing about this bold community is that bold community, like I said, cares more about people than stuff because the, the truth is that we're going to spend eternity together. So you're going to treat somebody different if you know you spend a long, if you're going to spend a long time with them. Okay, so I'll yell at somebody from my car driving around San Francisco because let's face it, everybody's a moron. But my relationship with that person is going to last 10 seconds right? Because he cuts me off. I call him a moron. He yells a remark about my brother and then we both, or my mother, and then we drive off in separate directions and we never see each other again. But what if I was driving around and Corey cuts me off? Corey <laughs> cut me off. I can't believe it. Well, I'm probably not going to scream at him and say things about his mom, right? Because our relationship is going to last longer than 10 seconds. 
we church people, we're going to spend eternity together. Just think about that for a minute. Eternity. That is a long time. That means that someday in heaven, your small group is going to get together and have a little party because you've known each other for a thousand years, right? And then a million years and then a billion years and then 10 billion years. I, you know, okay, I'm going to stop there at 10 billion years because let's just, that's a long time to know somebody. That's perspective for you right now. Do you want to spend do you want to be sitting there a million years in and then have to say to somebody, do you remember back when we were on earth and it was busted up and broken and I loved my stuff more than I loved you? I got a new MacBook Pro when my other one worked fine while well, you couldn't pay your bills, right? That's perspective. These people are working and living under this perspective. It was a perspective of this Jerusalem church. Barnabas says, look, says, look I'm just going to sell my crud and I'm going to feed these people. I'm going to sell my field because it's just a field. But these people, these relationships, this is what's important. That's awesome. Okay, next, the bold community is marked by bold prayer. That was our second one. So I'm going backwards. Bold prayer. Now, the first thing about bold prayer is that uh, bold prayer is about praying scripture. Now, how often does this happen to you? That you're praying and then all of a sudden you're thinking about your work or the kids or the giants pitching, which (laughs) happens to me a lot, or your favorite TV show, which is probably Star Trek. And... Then you catch yourself and you think, wow, Lord, how did I get here? How am I thinking about the Ferengi and Captain Picard or whatever when I was just praying about, you know, my church or whatever? I'm such an idiot. Um, I think that happens to most of us more than we like to admit. Now, one of the greatest disciplines that you can take up is to pray is to pray with your Bible open. And I think that this is what they did here. They literally, they just prayed Psalm 2 about David and the Gentiles raging and plotting in vain and all that. Um, If you want a book recommendation, one of my favorite books is called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. It's like this little short book and he just kind of goes about how, how to do this with the Psalms and everything. But this is the pattern of the greatest prayers in the Bible. God, you are whatever. God, you did this. And it goes on and on. Remember when you saved these guys and you won this battle and, you know, that's what we saw here. Lord, you're sovereign you did all this and you even planned Jesus's death. You obviously know what you're doing. So, right, it orients your heart to this greater reality that God is sovereign, he's in control. And so then when you're done praying about who God is, it's a lot easier than to not ask for dumb stuff that doesn't matter and isn't in line with the heart of God. And that's what they did in this prayer. They're quoting scripture. And then at the end, it's time to pray about and ask God for something. And they say, wow, He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. How about just give us more boldness, right? Give us more boldness. That's God used the beginning of that prayer to line up their heart with his. And so um, that's the first part. The second part is I think bold prayers are more about uh, his kingdom and less about our own comfort. Um, A couple months ago, there was this clip that got passed around Reddit and everywhere, Facebook and whatever, about these two TV preachers and these two prosperity preachers, uh, Copeland maybe was one of his names. I don't remember. Um, they were, they were on TV and they were asking their donors for a new plane. Now listen again, not a plane, a new plane, right? And so while they're asking them for a new plane, they start explaining why they need a new plane. Well, because I do this many preaching engagements a year and it's just, I asked a pilot and he said, it's not even possible to fly commercial to all these different places. And I was like, uh, no. And then he goes, and then I was praying once on the plane and the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and gave me this word. And the two guys are like talking about it. And he's like, oh yeah, that's happened to me. And he's like, that just doesn't happen on commercial flights. You know, and I'm like, oh my goodness, don't sit next to these guys in a thunderstorm. You know, like this is pretty awful. Here's, 
here's, this is what they, and then they prayed about it. Lord, give us a new plane. This was absolutely insane. I think the more that you pray about who God is, the less your prayers will be about things like a new plane. (laughs) And most of us aren't praying for a plane, but you know what I mean? When you pray, it's even in the Lord's prayer, isn't it? Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're praying about God's holiness and reminding yourself of his work in scripture, his work in your own life, in his kingdom, it's impossible for that truth to really impact you and hit you in the heart. And then for you to ask for dumb stuff that doesn't matter. And that's why the Bible basically says that when you ask God for something, he's going to give it to you. Because what it really means is when your heart is lined up with what God wants to do, all you're going to ask him for is the stuff he already wants to give you. This, and he, your prayer is going to be the means that he uses to bring that sort of stuff about. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't pray for stuff, right? We, don't, we pray for people to be healed. Um, we pray for different things, but we do it from a different perspective. We do it from that kingdom treasure perspective. So if you're going into a job interview, right? It's God, I really want this job versus God, put me in the job where I can benefit our city and society and have opportunities to love people. Not God, give me the job that makes the most or whatever. Or kids, right? I was a youth pastor for a long time. God, I really want my kids to win this soccer game or versus God, let, you know, please use these formative years, including soccer to make my kids a passionate follower of you, right? We're praying for different stuff the way that we pray as we pray these kingdom prayers. All right. So then we have bold community, bold prayer. And then the last one is these bold risks. Now these bold risks, they look, this is the first thing, they look crazy from the outside, right? Imagine back to the guy buying the field with the treasure. He's overpaying for the field. Uh, You know, let's say he's overpaying, right? For this field and all his friends and his family are thinking, why are you paying so much money for this apartment or this field or whatever it is? And they see this guy and he's selling his car and his vintage guitars, and whatever it is, he sells his wedding ring or something, and everything, he's selling it off to buy this run-down dump of an apartment, and you think, this guy is absolutely bananas. But you know what? That's okay. It's okay to look like you're nuts, because we're salt in a bland world. We're light in the darkness. We're a bunch of weirdos. We stick out so that Jesus can be seen. Um, Steve Timmis and this guy, Tim Chester, wrote a book called Total Church, and they said this. Let me read this to you. We have become strangers because we have become strange. Our values, lifestyle, and priorities are radically different from the surrounding culture. Our faith makes us strangers in our own land. We don't fit in. We are on the margin. But I don't mean to say that and say you should stick out. And what that means is you should offend and anger people, right? There's a lot of Christians that think salt and light means that we should, we should be so annoying that everybody hates us, you know, and that's giving the rest of us kind of a bad reputation. What this means is, that we should stick out, but we should do it by the way that we love people, right? Like crazy kind of love. And um, not the kind of the love that we see in the world where everybody just takes care of everybody who looks like them and sounds like them and is like them, but the crazy kind of love where we just unconditionally love all sorts of people. And in Acts chapter four, we see that love in the way that Peter and John are willing to die just to have a few minutes to share the gospel with those people hanging out at the temple, who were there to pray, the faithful followers of Yahweh, who were there to give their sacrifices and do the stuff. And they said, look, I'm willing to be executed so that I can share the gospel with these people. That's from the outside, that looks crazy. But then the second thing is, like I said, from the inside, it's not that risky at all. What we do with this kingdom stuff is not really that crazy, right? There's gold under the floor and we know it, right? We have the gospel teaching us that there's, and the scripture showing us 
that what Jesus has done is true and he really has risen from the dead and he really is gathering his people together and we're going to spend eternity together in the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping him perfectly. That's gold underneath the floor, my friends, right? And people meeting Jesus, that's what we should be going after, no matter what's the cost. It's worth the risk. And we see that played out all through the New Testament, Paul getting stoned, all this stuff, right? It's, it's worth the risk. So first I'll say this, if you're here, I don't know everybody here, but if you're here and you're even not really a follower of Jesus, you're just sort of looking into it. We're glad you're here. You might think we're weird, right? That's okay because we are, right? We skip Sunday brunch to come to church together. Um, the whole San Francisco is at brunch right now, you know. Uh, we get together and we sing love songs to an invisible guy, right, who died, but we're, we believe that he's still alive and is ruling the universe from his throne in heaven. That's weird, Right? We read theology in unison. We eat bread to remember the way he died, that his body was broken. And we'll do that in a minute. We drink juice to remember that his veins spilled blood. That's weird. (laughs) We get super in-depth studying a 2,000-year-old book written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. We give our money to each other. Look, this is weird stuff, but this is why. Why it's weird is because we really believe the gospel story. We really do believe that humanity is not supposed to be like this. We really do believe that God became a human being and died in our place so that we could get credit for his righteousness as he gets credit for our sin. We really believe he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And we really believe that he is in control over everything that happens in our world and that he wants everybody in San Francisco to know about it. So closing words, and I guess just to, you know, you guys here at First Press. It's okay to be weird. That's what I want to encourage you to, you know. It's okay to live your life looking weird because of that treasure. When you get together, pray these kind of prayers. Encourage each other to keep focused on the treasure and encourage each other, you know, to, to you know, like to sell everything and help each other, you know, live this kind of life together because you are going to spend eternity together. Your small group is going to have that 10,000-year party, and it's going to be great. And I'm going to crash it. I'm going to be like, I told you you were going to have this 10,000-year-old party, right? Now, hopefully, like I said, the sermon wasn't all brand new information. It's just, you know, an example of one part of member of the church holding up the gospel truth for other members of the church because we constantly need to continually, we need to feed on this stuff all the time. And so every week as you come to uh, church here, I hope that what you're doing is you're leaving with a deeper sense of who God is, a deeper sense of that treasure, right? You're remembering the gold so that you can go and buy that rundown apartment. That's what the early church did. And it's amazing in the book of Acts is that they turned the entire Roman world upside down. And they even said this once in Thessalonica, Paul is in Thessalonica, which was his Greek city. And um, in Acts 17, this is what it says about them. And when they could not find them, they're looking for Paul. They dragged Jason, who was one of his buddies, and some of the brothers, so some of the church people before the city authorities. And this is how they're describing them. And they're shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also. That's what they accused Paul and these Christians of doing. They've turned the world upside down, and now they've come here because of the way that they're living for this treasure. That's my hope for the church in San Francisco, for your church, our church, the porch, for reality, for Christ church, for all these different churches. My hope is that we would be so bold in how we believe the gospel that we would turn San Francisco upside down and that everybody would say, hey, aren't those those guys from First Presbyterian, the ones who are turning the city up on its head, you know? Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? But the only way we're going to do it is if we really do focus, constantly focus on that treasure, on Jesus. We got to be We've got to be laser focused on who Jesus is and all the stuff that's happening around us is not really going to matter. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.
Lord, we, we thank you for this passage and, um, you know, for this truth. We thank you for this gospel truth. We thank you for everything that you've done for us, the way that you died and, uh, in our place when we didn't deserve anything but judgment from you. We thank you for the way that you've sent your Holy Spirit upon your church to, um, to fill us and guide us and connect us to you. We thank you for the way that um, you're ruling from heaven right now and that you're uh, really in control of everything that's going on. Lord, we confess that we're probably more timid than we are bold in our faith in the way that we live in San Francisco. And um, we know that you are the sovereign Lord. We know that you're the one who um, brought your people out of slavery. We know that you're the one who anointed David King and empowered him to defeat Goliath. We know that you're the one who um, spoke to your people through the prophets. You know, you created the world, right? You've brought uh, life from death. We know all this stuff is true about you, Lord. And so like the church uh, in uh, Acts chapter four, Lord, our deepest prayer is just for more boldness, is to work from that truth more and more and more each and every day. So we just pray that you'd be here now um, as we worship your name and as we, um, as we take communion together um, to continue to go deeper and deeper into that gospel story. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so now that's what we'll do. We'll uh, kind of move into our time where we take communion together. And communion is... Um, you know, like I said, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> it's, it's the time where we get together and um, we celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross and we remind ourselves what it is that he's done. And um, one of my favorite things about communion um, is we all sort of, it's very easy as believers to fall into, um, without even realizing it, sort of a works-based feeling with God, where we think, I did something good, God loves me a little bit more. I did something bad, God loves me a little bit less. God owes me this. You know, he's upset with me here. And it's just such a backwards way to think about the God. It's not the gospel, you know? And so one of the reasons I love churches that take communion constantly is because um, I think communion is one of the best ways that God has given us to sort of knock that attitude right out of us, where he says, look, this is what happened. You couldn't do anything by yourself. You're a wretched, poor sinner. And you're going you're gonna to die without me. But what I did was I came and I became a man and I died on the cross. And my body was broken, he says. And my blood spilled out of my veins. So take a piece of bread to remember, to remember my body. Take some, some wine, some juice, whatever, to remember my blood. And so when we do that, that's what we're doing here. Is as a community, we are remembering the work of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And we're saying, Lord, we can only trust your grace. That's the only way that this is going to work. And so please knock that works righteousness uh, right out of us. So today we invite you to the table, if you're a follower of Jesus, to partake in communion, but to do so in a prayerful and uh, in a thoughtful way. Don't just, don't just make this part of your week that you don't think about. This is one of the most important parts of our you know, church service is where we come together and uh, we take the sacrament. So if you're here, you know, we invite you to this table. And as you do, um, um, you'll come up and you get the elements and go back and we'll take together. 
But as you do, I just invite you to pray like the church, as you're thinking about what Jesus has done for you, pray like the church did in Acts 4, right? About who Jesus is and just take some time right now and, and thank him and talk to him about what it is um, that he's done for you. Amen? Yeah. And then we'll come in, I'll, we'll take together. So we'll uh, do the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.